Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. Episode 70, The Battle of Fuentes de Inoro. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you'd like to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash generals and Napoleon for ad-free bonus content. You can support our podcast in other ways by following us and liking us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And as always, we thank you for your support. Now, on with the show. It is a new episode, so we're going to focus on a battle this time with our good friend Marcus Cribb joining us once again. Hello, thank you very much for having me back. It's been a yeah. little while. We've both it, been very busy. It has been a while. We've both been very busy. Um, why don't you tell my wonderful listeners where you've been? Uh, I've been interviewing Andrew Roberts. Oh, no, sorry, that's you. <laughs> uh, so um, I've been, uh, at the time of recording, just got back from Portugal and Spain guiding a lovely group uh, over some of the battlefields, including where we're talking about today, Fuentes de Unoro. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Battlefield tours. Um, yeah. So you you all met up like in Portugal, Lisbon, and then kind of toured the battlefields from there. That's right. We had a great time. So we met in Lisbon, uh, did the lines of Torres Vedras, uh, Relitha, uh, Vimero, um, up to Porto, uh, of course, did a walking tour of Porto, Rusaco, Fuentes. Almeida, Combat on the Coa, Suidad Rodrigo, Bridget Alicantra. Oh, I did quickly did the Combat El Bodon before we finished at Badahoff and then paid our respects at the British Cemetery at Elvas. So we got a lot into seven days and then I was out there for a couple of days beforehand uh, enjoying myself doing more history things. Well, that's exciting. And we also have exciting news that our good friend Marcus Cribb in a few months has a special uh, release coming out. What do you have? What do you have in store for us? Yes, much talked about. Um, so I've I've got my first book coming out. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, it's called Let the Men Cross. Uh, it's through Hellion, and they the, they really are now like the uh, military history uh, publishers. So I'm really honoured to be uh, as part of that. And it's about the the Battle of Porto. Um, Funnily enough, you know, I mentioned it enough times. Uh, there's never been a, a history of the Battle of Porto. Um, <laughs> and it just seemed like a massive gap uh, for me. The crossing of the Juro, uh, 12th of May, 1809. A very unusual battle with um, uh, an amphibious crossing right under Marshal Soult's nose mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of a city. So not only an amphibious attack, uh, but it's in the middle of, of a heart of a city. Portugal's second city uh, and a beautiful place. Now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, very easy for people to visit, but you go there today and you see uh, the architecture, the culture, and probably drink some port. Uh, people don't realize it's a, it's a battlefield. More than more than once, there was a salt storm the city and sacked it. Um, but when we were there recently, the Portuguese army uh, let us into their base because there's a memorial in there, and I organized that. And they were telling us about the, the liberal wars, which was brother against brother in the 1830s. And the, it was a battlefield then as well. So um, you, you often don't realize the history uh, that's all around you in quite uh, everyday circumstances. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. You get to uh, touch history and see it up close like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we look forward to the book release uh, May 2024, correct? That is the current schedule, yes. Um, I should be doing lots of stuff online, uh, hopefully some talks uh, to be confirmed, uh, but I'll always be happy to talk about Porto. Wonderful, wonderful. We look forward to that. And, oh, thanks, uh, so much. thanks for all your support as well. 
Oh yeah, no, that's that. You're right. That's a topic that needs to be covered, and uh, I look forward to reading that book for as soon as it comes out. Regarding what we're talking about today, Fuentes de Anoro, it's a three-day battle. But why is this one? Why are we talking about this? Why is this such an important battle? Well, this one's really in the heart of the uh, the keys to Spain between the the border of Portugal and Spain. So we ne- really are a stone's throw from Ciudad Rodrigo, and mm-hmm. uh, the other fort on the Portuguese side is the fort of Almeida. Uh, both beautiful cities, towns, walled, uh, walled fortifications, and uh, today and then they are very important. You needed to hold both in order to march effectively. Keep marching along that road, and you will reach uh, Madrid. Right. And just background, you know, obviously Napoleon invades um, Portugal first, then Spain. Um, He does somewhat well initially, but, you know, supplying your troops so far away from Paris, especially through the mountains of Spain, becomes quite difficult. So as Marcus mentioned, you do have to control the forts that are around the roads of supply, correct? Yes. I mean, if you almost draw a line from Porto, because it is Portugal's second city, to uh, Madrid, you're kind of going through this area, and that's where the road goes. Uh, it's very mountainous um, on the Portuguese side, uh, both high mountains and really low gorges, uh, wide-flowing rivers like the Coa and then uh, the Tagus. And uh, to cross those, uh, you need the good roads, to, especially okay. to, move, to move an army. You know, that's right. what you're talking about. You're going at the speed of the slowest wagon. Uh, that's always the way that the army's really uh, going to maneuver uh, in the 1800s. So uh, Fuentes de Uno is literally sits on the border. Uh, if you uh, visit it today and you go around, you will be changing your clock every like half an hour um, because there's an hour's time difference between Portugal and Spain. Uh, and when we were giving the talk uh, recently, I stood in Portugal and the, uh, the group stood in Spain. So I had an hour's time difference between us uh, over about two meters. Um, oh, wow. So it's it's rich, literally on the line of the border, if you look at a map. And uh, I think that kind of really highlights, it drives home, uh, this is a border conflict that we're talking about. The invasion of uh, Portugal, again, the last invasion of Portugal by um, the French. Uh, so we, we've done all of the, the opening conflicts. We've done the lines of Torres Vedras. And now Wellington's trying to, um, he's trying to capture Almeida, basically. So he's got a blockade in Almeida Fort. And uh, he's outside there and the French under Massina are coming down in order to relieve that uh, siege. Right. Wellington heads out and meets them here. Right. Let's talk about the forces involved. Uh, On the French side, they have about 46,000 troops. On the British side, it's 36,000, but they're not all British, correct? Yeah. In um, a classic uh, Peninsula War Army, um, they're not all British. Um, The British regiments that are... Um, you're looking at roughly uh, a third of those being Irish, uh, which obviously uh, was part of Britain then, uh, well, part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Um, but they they are spread out throughout the regiments, famously. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll come on to some specific regiments later, uh, especially the Connaught Rangers fight very uh, gallantly. And then he's got a lot of Portuguese. And actually a little bit unusually for this one, uh, they are a detachment of Portuguese guerrillas uh, sorry, the Spanish guerrillas actually Spanish, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, directly attached to Wellington's force as well. Right. And as you mentioned, uh, months earlier, the French had been repulsed uh, Battle of Osaka. If you want to learn about that one, you can see our earlier episode. 
And again, at the lines of Taurus Vedras, and after camping outside the lines for months, uh, the French strategically redeployed to the rear in Spain. And Wellington follows Massena's army cautiously as the Russians found out at the Battle of Zurich uh, 10 years earlier, you know, uh, Massena had the ability to strike like a cobra. So I think both com commanders were kind of warily eyeing each other. And as you mentioned, um, as Wellington moves into Spain, he's attempting a siege uh, of frontier cities like Almeida, which Massena is marching out to relieve. And that's kind of our background. I would like to talk about the topography of this this small town, Fuente de Noro. Mm. It's not up on a mountain like Busaca, right? It's more of a oh, flat. No, not at all. No, so uh, facing out uh, east, you're looking directly along dusty roads towards Ciudad Rodrigo. And beyond that, it's the Spanish plains, you know, the famous big flat open areas of, of Spain really is what we're talking about. Mm. Um, so behind Wellington, a long way to the rear, um, you've got uh, the River Coa, which is a relatively big river, but it's, uh, it's more that it's rocky than it is fast flowing. Mm. Uh, but the battlefield itself, pretty flat. Um, there is a north-south running uh, gentle, I wouldn't even go as far really as ridge, more of a slope. Um, that Wellington uh, can have some heights and he can look just, he's just on, standing on the Portuguese side looking towards um, Spain, which is where Massena's uh, coming in from. Mm -hmm. So flat means it works for cavalry, which probably helps Massena out. But this is a, a, again, a battlefield that does he, does Wellington pick this, you think, or is it just kind of where they smacked into each other? Uh, it's a bit of both, <laughs> effectively. Um, so Wellington does get to pick it, but he doesn't get, um, you know, the big open choices. He needs to be near to Almeida in order to uh, prevent the siege being uh, lifted. And mm. when we say flat, um, you know, lots of my friends and myself, I'm getting into myself, you know, war game and you, you put a table down, you put a cloth on it. Flat isn't flat. Flat isn't right. table flat. Um, right. I always like really keen off to talk about like Waterloo. There's there's subtleties, and at Francis de Uno, yeah, it's pretty flat, but there is some subtle ground that uh, plays an important part. And in the middle, uh, there is the village. It's like in England, we'd say almost a hamlet. It's tiny mm -hmm. of the Francis de Uno itself, and running just the edge of that on the Spanish side is the Dos Casos stream <laughs> i mean you go there today and it's like you can see all the reeds and the, and the lush grass and stuff but um right. uh, i know you like to fish and you'd be thoroughly disappointed uh <laughs> you, you, it's like you're not getting your fishing rod out you know you might get like your feet damp if you ran through it today right, um, right. but it's a bit of like muddy ground um i think there was a little bit of water there um in 1811 but uh okay. it's not like a, a big wide uh uh yeah tagus or something like that we've got out there okay well the battle kicks off on may 3rd 1811 the um, launches the assault against wellington how did the first day of battle go yeah so it's it's a really slow start um we get a battle in like three stages here uh, we get the three-day battle uh the first um he kind of massina probes he goes in uh, he goes into uh, the village of uh, Francis itself. Uh, the British have got uh, pickets out, the sentry positions out just to the east on the Spanish side. And uh, they get pushed back into the town, uh, you know, town, village. Um, mm. There's a small church, that's about it. Um, and then close fighting takes place within that village. And um, 
this is something, so it's a really small uh, inhabitant, but it's got high ground on both sides, the, this ridge. And uh, so everything kind of gets channeled in and it's really narrow uh, dry stone walls that each like stones about the size of um, an American football or rugby ball. Mm-hmm. And it's big, rough, I think granite. And, and like you, you brush against it, you'll get, you'll cut yourself. It's really harsh kind of terrain. Yeah. And the streets are really narrow. Um, and so when you're in there, you can see that you wouldn't get, and we, we did it, um, you wouldn't get more than like 10 to 20 people shoulder to shoulder uh, mm-hmm. in this village. Uh, so as Massena's troops come in, they lose that integrity. But what they do have is weighted numbers and they force their way up to the top of uh, the village. Uh, we see a repeat of this uh, later. Uh, they force their way kind of into that heart of the village. It opens around uh, the central square where the church is. And Wellington orders forwards the uh, 71st Highland Light Infantry who countercharge. Uh, these are your, your, your fierce Scottish warriors, um, typically from the lowlands, or what we, you know, we call the south of Scotland, mm-hmm. um, around the cities and the border areas. But they, um, the, the difference is they're wearing trues, they're wearing trousers uh, rather than kilts. And uh, they fix bayonets and they charge in uh, hand-to-hand combat and in a big sweeping motion, uh, push out uh, Massena's troops. Mm. And that's most of what we see. We see a bit of a feint in the north um, towards the 5th Division uh, and the uh, Fort de Conception up there, but it's not really committed um, in the same way. So th- this is really the only fight. It's kind of feels like both commanders are just eyeing each other up, waiting yeah. to see what's to come. It's like the first round of a heavyweight boxing match, just kind of like, you know, probing and, you know, jabbing. Probing, jabbing, getting their footwork in. Yeah. yeah. And then they've got like a bit of time out. Um, so the, the 4th of May, uh, both sides sit down. Uh, they wait. Uh, we're waiting to see if any like reinforcements are coming. Uh, and actually, it's quite an interesting one that there's a little bit of, can we call it fraternization? Um, so the the troops down on the uh, dos casos stream uh they they meet uh they shake hands uh, and uh, they they talk and uh some people like they find there's a bit in common Uh, i think there's a a french officer that used to live in england and he asked to um hand on some letters to his friends in london and they play like a game of chess i believe there's like a traveling chess set comes out and there's a little bit of chatting and jolly i've I've never I've never heard of that. I know there's that famous story of, in World War One where um, the Germans and the Allied soldiers had a soccer game. Over, I think it was over Christmas Day. Or the famous Christmas Day one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, I didn't know that that, that happened as well. In the yeah, it's, it's, it's a much smaller scale. Um, I know people always talk about the, the football at Christmas and if it's true or not, and I'll leave that to the, the order one historians. But yeah, there's definitely a bit of fraternization uh, there. You know, it's a, it's a London fighting. Uh, there is no... There's no battles going on and they are really close you know we often talk about like the range of a musket it's about 80 yards so the yeah. troops by nature have to get quite close yeah and so these um these pickets are there they fought the day before i think the fighting the day before just sees about um 200 casualties each side it's quite light um by that thing um and they they treat those casualties on this day so there's um you know a bit of napoleonic surgery taking place uh, right. within the the camps and that's just slows the pace of everything down uh, right and, and and i'd like to talk about Massena's subordinates once again because yeah. ultimately they fail him now busako he had marshal ney but by this time he'd sent marshal ney home for insubordination i think right after the lines of taurus vedras i think Massena wanted to launch another 
pour into Portugal where Ney told him he was crazy and Ney got sent home. So Messina still has, you know, he's got Marshall Bessier kind of in reserve who <laughs> he's controlling the famed mounted grenadiers and dragoons of the Imperial Guard. Yeah. But like Napoleon, Bessier was hesitant to throw these glittering columns into battle, which may have cost Messina this battle. And Messina is also starts to run low of ammunition in the third day of the battle, but we'll come to that. I think in this battle, Wellington is ably served by his subordinates and Messina is not, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he, he's got some names. They might not be um, kind of the household names, but they're certainly on the uh, Arc de Triomphe. He's got uh, uh, Rainer, Solinac, um, yep. from uh, Vimero, uh, mm. Ferre, he's going to be leading this attack. Uh, Derlon's there, who, of mm. uh, Waterloo fame. And uh, yeah, Rainer's the flank man. So um, mm. they, they, they seem to be experienced commanders. Um, right. Yeah, but they something doesn't quite gel together for them. Um, if you're putting marshals and generals in a position that if you do well, you get titles, massive rewards, you know, you can effectively, if you do really well in uh, Napoleon's army, you can run a country or you can own a country. Effectively. <laughs> um, that There's that kind of element of, is it more competition than um, teamwork? Right. I think that's where sometimes you get this, um, it, they've got the, all these talented guys who've come through the revolutionary wars and they're fighting for France. Now they're fighting for Napoleon. And that actually can mean like really big personal advancement as well. Yeah. So th- it would be very interesting to have been a fly on the wall of the, you know, the officer's tents in the evening when the wine's flowing, because I, I can imagine there'd be some snide remarks. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining things now, but um, yeah. yeah, there's a, well, you're creating an, an element of competition in the workplace, effectively. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, we'll get to Marshal Bessier's uh, lack of action here in just a bit. Um, so what happens on this third day, the May 5th? So they, they just spend a day kind of regrouping, treating the wounded, um, and Messina's trying to figure out what to do next. Yes. Um, so firstly, Wellington does something quite unusual. He overextends uh, his force uh, down to the south, the other side of uh, Poco, a little, an even smaller village um, called Pocovelo. Uh, he deploys the 7th Division, a relatively new formed uh, unit uh, nicknamed uh, Wellington's Mongrels because uh, they've got all sorts of different units in there, including the Chasseurs Britanniques, uh, who were French royalists uh, on paper, but now they've got loads of French deserters, Czechs, Germans, Poles in their right. ranks. There's right. Brunswickers there. There's newly changed uh, units, the 68 Durhams, who are now light infantry. So they're, they're like a real um, mixing pot. And he mm-hmm. extends them down uh, the other side of Pocovelo, and their support is the uh, the Spanish guerrillas under Sanchez. Uh, so yeah, on you're looking at it, going, okay, that's that's not uh, the strongest force down there, and they're quite far away from the main units. Um, the first and third division, and like Wellington, the third division, always known as the Fighting Third, uh, kind of like the heart of Wellington's army. He detaches the light troops, uh, so that's like a tenth of his force. Uh, each of the light companies, uh, twenty-two light companies, into the village of Fuentes de Uno itself, under a colonel mm. from the famous Ninety-Fifth Rifles. So they're going to form it, and they're meant to be light troops. are meant to be using their initiative, a bit more intelligent, at least. That's, that's the theory. And, uh, and then he pushes up along the ridge the, uh, the 5th and 6th divisions to, to hold that, uh, that hilltop kind of area. So 
he's quite so, extended as well. So is that a tactical error by Wellington? He overextended him? Simply put, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> so, and he holds his light division back. And um, he, he massively overextends that seventh division. It looks like an area that he doesn't expect uh, Massenet to come up in. So it's going to be like, oh, it holds its flanks. But there, there's nothing really between the seventh division, uh, a little bit of cavalry, and the core of the army, the, the first and third division near the uh, village. And it's, yeah, it's a couple of kilometers. Like, yeah, yeah not very far, but far enough in Napoleonic warfare. And uh, this is where, like, Massena sees that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And Massena, uh, I mean, for all his faults, the guy knew strategy, and he knew an opportunity when he saw one. And as uh, Wellington says later on, if Bonnie had been there, we would have been beat. Yeah. Um, so what happens? What, what, what takes place as the day goes on? So, yeah, Massena does, does three things. He kind of faints again with uh, Rainer's Corps up in the, in the north against the, the 5th and 6th Divisions. He pushes uh, Ferret and a few others into the village. Uh, and we'll, we'll come back to that. And then he uh, pushes largely his cavalry on a wide, uh, his left, uh, Wellington's right, uh, flanking manoeuvre, and that hits the 7th Division, who are overextended. Uh, so um, the guerrillas are, are no help down there and the seventh division are caught and there is that's why i said it's not flat flat there is some dead ground um mm -hmm. and that's why was, you know it's nice to go back and see these sites a second third time is to actually stand there and look for these kind of dead ground and see through you know let's see a, a french brigadier cavalry commander's eyes where they can start to hide troops and there's not loads of space you'd hide thousands of troops but a few hundred and you're going to spot people and then lose them and their, their big tall hats would be bouncing up and down and you probably hear them <laughs> and um they, they came up and they hit the seventh division not being expected um and the uh, certain units uh, including one of the guards actually are it's still in line when they're hit um, mm. there's a detachment of guards onto them the, from the third and they're, they're in line so this is the rock paper scissors of Napoleon right you don't want you don't want to be in line when the cavalry hits no no it's like um yeah i always say it's like rock paper scissors you you get into a square and they're like a, a you know that's hard rock and the scissors blunt against them but yep. if you're in line you're a thin bit of paper held taut and it's like you know cutting your wrapping paper it's the only time i ever cut anything like that is at christmas you want that sliding motion don't you with the scissors trying to get everything nice and smooth yeah and uh, that's what they can do and they they slam into the seventh division and now you've got a swirling maelstrom of cavalry around uh, the the squares and also you've got like the rally squares where people just run back to back and form like a little <laughs> huddle and in the meantime how's Ferre doing inside the town yeah, so in the meantime, he does very well. Um, it's different to the first day. Uh, there's a lot more British in there, and he starts to uh, work his way up. Uh, what the British are doing with these light troops is they're using uh, like cover, and they're doing uh, pairs, fire maneuver, covering each other back as they retreat up the streets. Yeah, shoot so and scoot. Shoot yeah. and scoot, yeah. So one of you's firing, um, one of you's moves, and then you, as you reload, and the light troops are trained to like kind of reload as best they can as they're moving along, jogging. So they, they're doing that, and they're doing it on a larger scale as well. So it's slowing things down. And these are really narrow streets, so they're having to like somersault <laughs> over um, some of the uh, walls. Right. Um, you know, there's dead ends, and they'll be running down there. Um, and they'll, they're doing it. So Ferre's coming on. Um, yeah. he's, he's coming on. For a long time uh, and he's suffering quite high casualties actually 
Yeah, and I, I read that around this time, though, you know, Masena, as I mentioned earlier, he's, he's starting to run low on cannonballs, um, musket balls, ammunition. There's, a, I think, a company of French grenadiers who just run out of ammo entirely and are just slaughtered uh, at some point. Yeah, they, they, they basically get cut off later. Um, and yeah, Masena, he's like pounding the ridge above um, with his cannon, which kind of limited effect. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the battle takes place in the village and, and down on the flank, actually. Um, so by pounding away, it's not actually having the biggest effect as um, other battles. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but he's, you know, the the village is heavily contested uh, during that morning. Uh, both sides, it's kind of hanging in the balance, and that gives Wellington a chance to look over and see what's happening with the seventh division, and that he's made a mistake. You know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no denying this. He he has, mm-hmm. and so he sends over the the famous uh, light division. And they, they, they have to go south uh, in double time, so running effectively, uh, a jog, and they cover the ground down to uh, Pocobello, uh, where they can then support the 7th Division, who are like basically trying to move out that way. Um, and the, what's, what's really unique now is the Light Division forms square, uh, and they have to march in and out square. So what the ideal situation is you go into square, uh, so you basically your flanks turn back and you do create uh, it's not a it's not it's more of a rectangle actually on paper and mm-hmm. um they were then once the cavalry move away and you've got a lull you go back into uh, actually a column rather than a line um so like a french attack column and march away as quickly as possible and then go back into square mm-hmm. what happens here is the french apply such pressure because you think the way that they're causing casualties actually is riding up to people and shooting them in the face with a pistol or carbine more than actually with a sword Right. And uh, so the squares have to move uh, in square, which is really <laughs> difficult to do. Um, yeah. Because you're meant to have people, you meant to have two ranks kneeling, two ranks standing is the, is the British uh, method. I think the, the Russians, for example, have all four ranks standing. So you've got people kind of like crouching or st- like stood up who then have to turn and kneel. And that creates the four ranks. The, um, the front rank uh, put their muskets down at 45 degrees and just kind of like, ground it the second rank kneel and fire third rank stand and fire over the kneelers and the fourth rank kind of between the shoulders and they they can all get out so it's the first rank are not really firing and all four ranks have got bayonets fitted and that creates a big wall of steel Uh, the other thing that happens is actually the 95th rifles the famous riflemen uh, of sharp fame and this is Mm -hmm. uh, sharp's battle for anyone who's following along the books and films um they actually get detached into some of the rocks and some of the, the hedges and things like that. And they, they hide off there and just kind of using themselves as marksmen and taking out uh, French cavalry, probably like, you know, aiming for the officers and the trumpeters as best they can. Mm-hmm. And that saves the seventh. The seventh have to like kind of get out there as quickly as possible. The light division take a lot of the pressure and then they basically have to kind of, well, the seventh have to, have to limp almost back home and the light division do this amazing maneuvers where they're uh, in and out square double time rifles swirling around with a huge amount of french cavalry yeah it's, and uh, it's really impressive yeah indeed and uh light division that's a black bob crawford's group right uh yes yeah it is uh who okay. will um not feature too much more in our stories because he's no he's, but we... he's gonna get killed soon yeah okay uh, no, no spoilers excellent um yeah so he dies at uh, the storming of Suid edward ego and uh, dies with his wounds there 
Um, yeah, so but, um, this is about his Iron Discipline, Black Bob. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen that episode, it's there to do with his um, terrible uh, temper. <laughs> effectively. Yeah, indeed. And uh, but it's around this time, you know, the, the French cavalry is taking some some casualties, and Massena sends Charles Oudinot, who's the son of Marshal Oudinot, he's an aide de camp, and he sends him to the Imperial Guard, uh, who are sitting in reserve, and he says, "Hey, you know, I think it was Louis Lepic who was the general in charge." Yeah, he's, yeah. He's like. He's like, hey, you need to charge now, according to Masena. And what what kind of happens there? Yeah, it's um, yeah, Lipek, and he's just, well, as far as I'm aware, just refuses. <laughs> yeah, he does. Like, yeah, it just um, th- there's there's not much reason. He's kind of like, no, these are, I, I believe the motivation is along the lines of, you know, these are Napoleon's uh, favorite troops. We're not going to yep. release them. Yep, and Marshal Bessier is the only one who could release him, and he was off allegedly inspecting a series of ditches uh which the army had passed a few days before so i think bestier purposely i don't i don't know what you want to call it, if you want to call it treachery or or just didn't want his brother marshal to win that battle for whatever reason you think he's like kind of tying his hands a little bit i don't know i he's a strange one bestier because he was really yeah. close with napoleon he was a good friend of napoleon but he almost got his marshal's baton just because they were friends. I don't know if he actually had any military talent. I know he won a few battles here and there in Spain, but I, I don't, I don't know if he had any, he, he does something similar in Russia a few years later. I, I, I just, I think his military acumen was limited, although he was very loyal to Napoleon. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, you know, we were saying earlier about uh, recruiting and then creating rivalry. I mean, that's it. You are promoting people because they're your friends. I mean, the nepotism in uh, the Napoleonic army is terrible. You know, they are, mm-hmm. he is definitely promoting people because he's fought with them in Italy and places. I mean, counter argument, the, the British system is to do a lot of wealth and then uh, favorites of families and things like that. So it's not, it's not like, oh, I'm holding Britain up as a perfect example. Nowhere near. But um, yeah. it, there's a cult of personality in the Napoleon's army and it's his friends rather than the system that's kind of in the British way. Um, that's weighted so his his friend so yeah if he likes Bessie he's going to promote him you know so um, yeah I, I yeah. will say that it's a strange one that he's off and it's uh, particularly odd that uh, Lepec you know refuses to uh, they're the uh, as you said the the Grenadier uh, cavalry so, so they're the yeah. elite of the elite and so kind of the moments lost to the cavalry and then what happens in the town are they finally pushed out the French so the French uh, push again back up to the top of the town um the, the village in this main square and uh this is where uh wellington unleashes um some of his again some of his uh gallic warriors so he has the 71st uh highland light infantry the 79th highlanders and the 88th connaught rangers who uh are famed for speaking very little english uh so they're uh from quite the central south of ireland and uh gallic speakers primarily for their rank and file yep and uh, they between, and then you've got two Scottish regiments, and I think the uh, 24th as well, who are uh, English, uh, but are going to contain Irishmen as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they fix bayonets and, uh, and charge in en masse. Um, famously, the, the ATF Connor Rangers in Gallic war cries, uh, one of the later mottos of the, uh, the Royal Irish is Foa Bala, which is Gallic for like, mind out the way, basically get out of the way or I'm going to stab you, uh, is coming in at this point. <laughs> and uh, if you uh, get a chance, there's a really good account for a young officer called uh, Ensign Grattan and uh, G-R-A-T-T-A-N. 
and uh, he, he's brilliant for this because he's right there in the action, swinging his sword, and he writes his account like a, an adventure novel. Like if you like Sharp, you're like reading Grattan, but it's true. Okay. Um, so that's, that's my top recommendation. Uh, and he, they they charge in and they sweep out the village. So that's where you said yeah the uh, the grenadiers uh, mm. get cut off, and they're kind of going down one part of the village. And uh, they, they reach a dead end. I think there's about 100 uh, of them. And they reach dead end. They turn around and no mercy is given and no mercy is offered. And they're just like kind of bayoneted to death yeah. in, that, in that street. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, they are pushed out of the village um, almost completely. Hand-to-hand fighting is back over the walls that have been fighting earlier. You know, put into your mind the muskets are quite a single-shot weapon. Because um, once you're in these quarters, you fire once. Um, you can't reload. So if you, someone's coming at you, you, he's probably loaded. Statistically, you're going to assume he's loaded. But you see him fire. Right. Actually, it's quite a vulnerable position because now he's just got, you know, the pointy end one side and the big butt of the right weapon the other. Um, so it, it becomes very hand-to-hand. Tooth and claw, I think, would be um, more apt. It's pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and the uh, French aren't giving, giving up uh, by any accounts. You know, they're, they're being swept out, but they are fighting their ground. Right. And, you know, with the cavalry, the uh, reserve cavalry refusing to charge and, and uh, Frey and um, the French comrades getting pushed out of the town, I think Massena realizes the opportunity is lost and he kind of begins the retreat, I think, after that. Yeah, there's just one other um, little anecdote I wanted to share about the, sure. the 7th, actually. So they're supported by um, a guy called Norman Ramsey, uh, who's leading a battery of guns uh, known as uh, Bull's Troop because they're... Um, they're named after the normal commander, uh, but Captain Bull isn't there. Uh, so Norman Ramsey's uh, commanding the guns, and he gets cut off in the in the French cavalry charge. And uh, two gunners um, are honour and tradition are held up in the guns rather than the colours, so we don't have flags because that would be impractical. Um, mm. So uh, he's cut off, and so he not only wants to survive his life, obviously, and his men's lives, but he needs to survive uh, with and escape with the guns. And uh, apparently this like whirling, swirling uh, maelstrom of cavalry, he sees an opening uh, back towards the north and Wellington's positions. And uh, he does a quite an unusual thing if he literally limbers up the guns, hooks them up and gets all his men to draw swords. And they kind of charge away, apparently sword to sword combat uh, with some of the French as they close back in. Hmm. Gets away and actually manages to unlimber the guns and rejoin the action. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, what you've kind of got by the end of the day is Wellington's brought the Light Division and the 7th Division back to his centre. And then the, the village has been this fiercely contested over. But you can imagine these uh, Scottish and Irish warriors kind of reaching down towards the Dos Casas stream, pushing the French over it, and then kind of like stopping for breath um, and water. And that kind of pauses the fighting. You know, mm-hmm. the French uh, have to turn on their heels, uh, are pushed out. Uh, the, as you say, the, the Imperial Guard cavalry aren't committed, and uh, it it starts off quite like it did on the third. You know, um, not a lot of a big manoeuvre outside of um, the southern bit, the seventh and the light division. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's quite an interesting one from that point of view that there's not these big manoeuvres. Would you say? Yeah, well, let's. I I want to talk aftermath because. Mm. Strange with the Peninsula War, either like Busaka, where really nothing changed other than a few, you know, thousand casualties, or it's a very pivotal battle like um, Bimero, uh, Karuna, Salamanca, or Vittoria, where 
a lot changes and this is one of those where a lot changes afterwards afterwards it's quite different so yeah um, wellington's able to uh, go back to besieging almeida uh, the fort but actually the french commander manages to slip out in the middle of the night uh, without firing a shot uh, during that uh, apparently wellington's absolutely furious at that yeah in in terms of the siege of almeida um you know there's a 1400 man french garrison that slips through as you mentioned the the british portuguese lines at night um only 360 french troops are captured but the rest escapes and an infuriated wellington wrote afterwards quote i've never been so much distressed by any military event as by the escape of even a man of them end quote Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, why is he, why is he, what happened there? Well, he's hoping to capture the town uh, with all the French guns uh, and with their commanders and their men, but they managed to return to the uh, the French lines and, you know, carry on their war. And uh, yeah, he turns that on to Erskine, who's a really interesting uh, case because he, I, I don't know if it, actually if it's diagnosed as combat stress as we'd have today mm-hmm. or what, but he, he later kills himself. He throws himself out the window in Lisbon. Um, yeah so yeah yeah, so not not one of wellington's most competent commanders and actually he's removed from command after just randomly joining a cavalry command that he uh cavalry charge sorry that has nothing to do with uh in the middle of one battle so um slightly slightly unstable uh man but yeah the 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 french do very well to you know slip out at night Um, absolutely yeah and uh yeah massina uh himself though is uh recalled and uh Apparently, when he arrives uh, back in uh, Paris, apparently he'd gone. He had long black hair before he went, and now he's looking a bit dishevelled. And apparently, there's a quote about he had not one uh, black hair left on his body. He'd gone grey all over. Quote. <laughs> and, well, uh, do you remember what was said to him? <laughs> oh yeah, indeed. He said, uh, so, uh, "So, Prince of Essling, you're no longer Massena, you know, uh, by Napoleon," which I think is just a brilliant uh, dig. <laughs> I mean, it's a cut, isn't it? It's it is a cut, cut. But if you think of Busaka, where the French lost four thousand, and in this battle, actually, we should talk about casualties briefly. If you want to talk about that, um, yeah, yeah, we didn't. Sorry, we uh, didn't mention that. So, um, it's about two and a half thousand uh, French casualties, including uh, killed, wounded, and captured, and it's just about one and a half plus thousand um, allies uh, killed, wounded, and captured. So there's it's not high casualties uh, compared to some of the bigger actions, um, but there's a noticeable difference there between the uh, the British and the, uh, the French. Uh, but you can definitely see one and a half, two and a half thousand um, there in favour of the French taking more. That you know they were badly mauled. They started off the, the battle uh, with more troops, and uh, they certainly uh, come off worse of it. And yeah, they're having to. They, they, and they've also failed to their main objective, which was to relieve the siege of Almeida. It just so happens that the garrison of Almeida are quite savvy and managed to get away. Yeah, and uh, he, but even Wellington realised how close he was. Like, he didn't mark it down as a victory. He was like, yeah, we were lucky to get out of that one. Yeah, as you said earlier, he uh, says, we would have lost it if Boney hadn't been there. So yeah. um, he he thinks it's close. Uh, if things had gone very slightly differently, um, uh, he would have lost and it's really a, a very interesting one to see that the village is so small and you're packing a good amount of the army into that tiny village. And as always, I'll, I'll share some photos and videos of uh, the streets. And uh, it's, 
yeah, partic- particularly one of these ones that as a as a village that is, you know, can people have continued to inhabit. There's actually a new they built a new village down the road where most people live. But the the old village, it feels like nothing's ever changed. Like you don't see anyone there when you visit it, um, except if it's another tour group. Um, it's kind of like all locked up little houses exactly where they stood, like goats and donkeys in the field. Uh, you feel like, yeah, it's a little time capsule, but that tight packed of this rough stone, it just feels really, yeah, dangerous, I think actually would be the word I'd be looking for. Right, right. And if I um, may zoom out a little bit on the geopolitical or macro scale, mm. it, it does two things, I think. One, it gets the French permanently out of Portugal. They never invade again. And two, it cost Massena his military career, and he is one of Napoleon's best generals, and he never goes really back into the field after that. Yeah, I mean, the, the last invasion of the, you know, it's a big thing for Portugal. Um, you know, they suffered very badly under French occupation. Um, the, I think I've mentioned it before, but the, the killed and uh, wounded of the, uh, the civilians, how they suffered um, by the French uh, is slightly Overlook, so I always want to highlight, you know, the, the Portuguese certainly gave as good as they uh, got, as much as they could back against um, captured uh, French uh, soldiers and officers. They, you know, did do torturing and butchering as well, but uh, the right. French were doing that against civilians. Right. And uh, there's also a huge element of starvation as well as uh, robbery and looting. And uh, there's certainly items in uh, parts of France today that uh, started in Portugal, shall we say. Um, but right. yeah, you know, Massino was, well, one of one of Napoleon's most talented. Can I be as bold to say? Yeah, um, I'd say. I mean, top certainly top five or top three if you want to get into it. If we um, start doing start doing some lists. I know a guy who's very good at lists of uh, commanders. Actually, I watched a live stream <laughs> recently. But <laughs> then, then if you talk about the battles of the Peninsula War, I mean, this has got to be one of the top five as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but from a it's from that kind of what if. Um, <laughs> Uh, kind of who, who, how would you fight it kind of perspective mm-hmm. um, you know Massena doesn't hold command again um, mm-hmm. Wellington goes on and now he's starting to look at uh, Ciudad Rodrigo and uh, eventually you know Madrid and you know all the way into south of France uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's starting to go on a forward uh, offensive battle and cam- well campaigns uh, now but uh, he comes so close, you know, if you, uh, if people wargame this, if you put the seventh division off on the flank, you know, they're going to, they're going to be really, uh, you need a big bit of gap and the, the French can exploit that. The fact they weren't all um, rounded up uh, by the French cavalry cut off or cut down and killed um, is kind of a highlight to the battalion and brigade level uh, commanders of the, uh, light division that really saved the day by key- and actually I'd probably say down to the junior officers and the NCOs who kept people in line in the square. Um, yeah, it's, I mean French cavalry are good. They are. Yeah. they are an elite force just by nature at this point. And uh, 1811 before the famous invasion of Russia, you know, you've got some ve- veteran troops and they're fierce and they've got the French Ilan and uh, yeah, you know, a lot of lot of flair in the French uh, cavalry. And, yeah. Uh, they just weren't able to break those squares. And what's that? There's a quote by Wellington. I think it's something. When I make a mistake, my men get me out of it. And when Marshal Soult or Massena makes a mistake, his men don't. Yeah, so, he's referring to them as his men's uncanny ability to, you know, dig their heels in. Um, yeah, he says yeah. whatever. Yeah, was, uh, my French, my my troops pull me out of it, and uh, that's what he's referring to. That 
things like this. You know, he this would probably be arguably Burgos, uh, one of his biggest blunders as mm-hmm. well. Uh, it's not a it's not a clean fight. This is very much saved by those uh, individual men, uh, which is yeah worth paying tribute to as well. Right, indeed, indeed. Well, uh, thank you for that overview, my friend. We uh, we covered a lot there. That was a pretty interesting battle. I went to stay in Oro, and um, and what if uh, someone wants to tour that area? What would you recommend? Yeah, it's uh, quite easy to uh, see some of the highlights. Uh, you can get into the um, the village center, so you can park uh, down on the stream, down on Dos Casas. So it's now a, a big concrete kind of slabs uh, over the stream, but you can uh, start there. There's, um, I think, a little cemetery to your to your back, and then mm. you can imagine yourself in the defeat of the French attackers, cross the stream and go up slowly through all these little narrow streets, and they open out and they go narrow again, and then you end up in the uh, the square where lots of the fighting take place. And uh, if you're adventurous enough, you can find um, some higher ground and then turn around and look back down on it. And then it's it's only like a five-minute drive down to uh, Poco Velo. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we, we found out you can't quite get coached down to the, uh, the position <laughs> of the squares, but you can get a car. Uh, so we, you know, you had to get off the coach. But um, okay. you can uh, go and stand there. And then you're actually on the, the Portuguese-Spanish border. Uh, there's lots of signs, which is quite fun. And you can then look back and see the uh, dead grounds that Amassan's cavalry would have come up. Um, you can also go to see that some of the, the north where the 5th and 6th British divisions were, but that's a little bit more built up, um, kind of now where the main border crossing is. Um, mm-hmm. But you can certainly get into the village uh, quite easily. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite famous from some paintings uh, in the village and uh, some scenes in Sharp. So it's a nice one to visit, and it's a stone's throw from uh, lots of other battles out there as well. So Combat Makoa, Armida, Sudo Rigo, all within uh, like 15, 20 minutes' drive. So it's a good one to explore, really is. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, uh, on-the-ground reporting that you did for us. <laughs> and uh, again, Marcus has a book coming out in May 2024, and the title of the book is... Let the men cross. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wellington's famous quote from the Battle of Oporto. So thank you for that as well. You're um, very welcome. Thank you again for your support. And uh, hey, hey, listeners, you know, support John, like, subscribe, do all that good stuff for Jennifer Napoleon. <laughs> and I didn't even tell him to say that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks to my friend. And um, yeah, we look forward to having you on the show once again very soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Thank you.